0: open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 please Romans chapter 5 if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning we have Bibles available for you in the Purac in front of you and if you want to take one of those black Bibles out open it up to page 1129 you'll arrive at Romans chapter 5 Two weeks ago, we were looking at chap- or, uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. We entitled that message, Adam and the Reign of Death. In those verses, we noted that Paul conclusively demonstrated that all mankind sinned in Adam and are thus subject to the penalty of death because of that sin. I've had a number of conversations in the two weeks that has followed and some, uh, some fun and interesting email exchanges along the way about this concept of having sinned in Adam because this is a very difficult concept to grab around with your mind. I told you two weeks ago it is a mystery. It has eluded the greatest minds of the church the last 20 centuries. I don't expect that we'll solve it in our day. In fact, I would submit to anyone, if you think you have solved it, then you need to think a little harder. uh, Because I do think it is a mystery that God has intended to be such. But the central truth of it can nonetheless be understood. And that is that somehow, in some way, when Adam fell, we fell too. We are absolutely accountable, guilty as charged with the sin of Adam. And we bear that reality in our bodies the truth of which was illustrated for us in this past week with a couple of brothers who went home to be with the Lord. This notion, by the way, is very foreign to the American mindset. We pride ourselves on rugged individualism. Our whole culture, to one degree or another, stands upon the idea that people... Pay for their own sin. They stand or fall based on their own merits. And so the idea of some sort of collective solidarity, that in some way one person's actions would then be chargeable to another, is foreign to us. In fact, it's offensive to us. The idea that a family or a tribe or a nation or a race could somehow be responsible because of the actions of one representative of that group is a very foreign concept to us not so though in an asian culture or even in an african culture they are far more comfortable with this idea of solidarity and in fact since the bible is an essentially an asian book The Bible is very comfortable with this notion as well because God is comfortable with it. There are many, many places in the scriptures where the actions of one represent the actions of a group, the one and the many. Just for example, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10, there a Gentile priest king named Melchizedek collected tithes from the Levitical priesthood because Abraham paid him a tithe of his war tribute. And the Scripture says that Levi, the father of the tribe of the Levites, was in Abraham's loins at the time it happened, and thus the Levites paid tithes. We can go to Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan, where there one individual, took the tr- some treasure from the city of Jericho that was under the ban and in Jer- in Joshua chapter 7 verses 1 and 11 it says very clearly that Achan's sin is Israel's sin and violation of the covenant we're told in Acts chapter 4 verses verse 27 that when the leaders of the nation of Israel, rejected Christ as their Messiah and called for His crucifixion, that all Israel sinned. All Israel became guilty of crucifying their own Messiah. These are just a few examples. There are many, many more. And so the notion of the one and the many is very much woven into the fabric of biblical truth. So hard as it is for us to get our minds around it, it is nonetheless reality and it is something we have to come to grips with. And you know what? I praise God for it. I praise God for it. I'm not all that thrilled about Adam and the one in the many there. But I praise God for the one in the many in Jesus Christ because without that, beloved, not I and not you would have any chance whatsoever. Verses 12 through 21 the section that we're looking at together this morning, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two people. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And the actions of either one of those individuals determines the eternal destiny of all those who belong to to them. As the passage unfolds, Paul is going to demonstrate, and that's really what's before us this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 and following. And as that section unfolds before us, what Paul is going to argue is that bad as it was and is what Adam has done, it is more than offset by what Christ has done. That the action of the one in Christ is far superior to the action of the one in Adam. In the process, Paul is going to provide his final, and most definitive reason why we can rest with absolute confidence in justification by grace through faith alone. The structure is simple. I shared it with you last time. Verses 12 through 14, Adam and Christ are introduced. Verses 15 through 17 this morning, Adam and Christ are contrasted. Verses 18 through 21, Adam and Christ compared. So it's a very, very simple outline. And so this morning we're going to look at the the contrast and comparison of Adam and Christ and their effect upon humanity so that we understand and rejoice in the vastly superior nature of Jesus Christ and the reign of life. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam and Christ contrasted. Notice at the end of uh, verse 14, that's where Jesus is introduced, really, in this section. twelve through the majority of verse 14 has all been about Adam. But here at the end of verse 14, Jesus is introduced where He says, Adam is a type of Him who was to come. Tupas in the Greek, it means... A form or a figure or a pattern a type even but Christ is not an exact type or or, excuse me Adam is not an exact type of Christ the similarity between the two really only lies in one area the similarity is that the specific action of one had a profound effect on many that's the similarity that the destiny of those that belong to the One is assured by the action of the One, whether it be Adam or Christ. And that's where the similarity ends. And Paul wants to make that absolutely clear. And so after having said that Adam is a type, a tupas of Him who was to come, a type or a pattern of Christ, he's going to immediately begin to contrast them, lest we foolishly think, that the similarities are extensive because they're not. Adam is the man of shame. Adam is the man of shame, through whom sin and death entered into the stream of humanity. Christ is the exalted Lord of glory, through whom a new humanity is constituted and righteousness and life. And so Paul's going to provide three contrasts here for us in verses 15. 16 and 17, that will show how dissimilar Adam and Christ really are. I've given you a handout with an outline that kind of breaks this down for you. The reign of Adam and the reign of Christ are different. They are different, first, contrast in degree. Verse 15. They are different in degree. Degree. Notice how Paul begins, but the free gift is not like the transgression. He begins with a very strong adversative here to point out the contrast of the statement which he has just made in verse the end of verse 14, where he said that Adam is a type of him who was to come. But he says, calling your attention to this, that there is something about them. In fact, there is much about them that is not alike. And he's going to point that out. But the free gift is not like the transgression, he says. Transgression, what is that? Transgression means it has the idea of a false step, the idea of stepping off the path or, or going astray, turning aside, going someplace where somebody shouldn't go. It even is translated sometimes by the word trespass. And it even carries the idea, I think essentially, of sin. In fact, over in verse twenty, just notice that they're used here somewhat synonymously where he says in verse 20 the law came in that transgression might increase but where sin increased so they're used synonymously there over in verse 20 so the idea of a transgression or a, a trespass is essentially synonymous with sin and it, and it means to step off the path to go in the wrong direction paul also talks about the free gift he's making this contrast here he says the free gift is not like The transgression. Charisma is the Greek word translated free gift here. And in the context, I think we can determine what that gift is. Again, if you look at verse 17, in the verse, Paul says, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The gift that Paul is talking about here is the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. Righteousness. Not something inherent to us, otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. It is the gracious provision of God's righteousness that comes to us. You remember Paul back in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 said that he's not ashamed of the gospel for in it the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God is revealed. This is the same righteousness Paul's talking about here. So he's making a contrast for us immediately and he's saying Adam is, is a type of Christ, but... What Christ brings, the free gift of righteousness, is not like what Adam brought, the transgression, the stepping off of the path. Watch how he unfolds this here in the rest of verse 15. For he says, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Paul's using what I told you about before, an a fortiori Argument. You see it here in the much more. Remember, we talked about that up in verse 9 and verse 10. What Paul is basically saying, a fortiori, it's a Latin in term. It just means from the stronger. He's arguing that if this is true, then this is much more true. I illustrated it for you before. If I'm too old to serve in the United States military, then much more so my father is too old to serve. So Paul is, going, is using that kind of argument here. You notice it in verse 15. Where you see the word, much more. And what Paul is saying here is that, relatively speaking, Adam's one transgression produced the catastrophe of death, but much more the potent grace of God in Christ more than offset it. That's how they are contrasted here. Adam brought death, but much more. Christ brought life. They're different in degree. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier to accomplish? To kill or to bring life? Which is easier to accomplish? Any school child can kill. The most skilled physician in the world Cannot bring life. Death, a catastrophe, yes. But life, much more. Much more. You remember old Lazarus, right? Four days in the tomb. Who but Christ could call him forth? Who but Christ could speak and bring him back from the dead? Oh yes, Adam's Transgression brings catastrophe to the human race, but the gift through Jesus Christ is much more powerful than that. God's grace is all out of proportion to the offense of Adam. Adam's sin doomed the entire human race, but the gift of God through Jesus Christ is is infinitely greater because it is, Saves a remnant of that ruined race. The free gift exceeds the trespass. Anyone can trespass and cause death. Only Christ can give righteousness that brings life. They are different in degree. They are also different, verse 16, in extent. They are different in extent. Notice he says, and the gift is not like that. Again, the contrast being pointed out. It is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Paul's making a little turn in his argument here. Previously, he's been talking about physical death. Verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, he's been talking about physical death as, a, as the penal consequence of Adam's sin. But, but now he's going to begin to employ the terminology of the courtroom here. He talks about judgment. You see that verse 16? He talks about the one brings judgment. A judgment that later results in a, in a declaration of condemnation. Again, notice that. This is, this is the terminology of a courtroom. This is legal judgment legalese Paul's using here what he's saying is that when Adam transgressed when Adam stepped from the path he ruined himself and he ruined his race in the sense that we were declared judicially guilty before God a verdict of condemnation fell upon the race death is the penal consequence physical death comes because of the stepping aside But the verdict of the judge of the universe upon Adam and all of us is guilty as charged. Condemnation. Now, the opposite of condemnation. But on the other hand, you see the verse, the opposite of condemnation is justification. Another legal term. Justification. The legal declaration of acquittal. In Adam. Declared guilty, condemned in Christ, acquitted, justified. Using that legal structure, Paul is now going to talk about in this verse the difference and extent between Adam's the legal verdict that came upon Adam and the legal verdict that came comes upon us through Jesus Christ. It is different in magnitude is the first thing he'll point out. It is different in magnitude. Notice again, he said, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. Do you see that? Resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions. Resulting in justification. Condemnation was the legal result of one misdeed. One misdeed. But the gift of the righteousness of God is his gracious answer to centuries and centuries of accumulated misdeeds. You see how they're different in magnitude. The point of the matter is that the grace of God in Jesus Christ didn't just overcome the one misdeed of Adam for which we are all guilty. It overcomes that plus all the other misdeeds past, present and future of all the people of God for all time different in degree or magnitude rather let me let me see if i can illustrate it for you we have a number of uh, oikos groups small home groups that meet throughout the weeks in which we gather together and and uh, seek to apply this the scriptural teaching we heard on sunday morning many of these oikos groups celebrate communion together when they meet Now, suppose during the passing of the communion elements inside a person's home, a small drop of grape juice was spilled on the carpet. Cleaning that up, it would take some effort, but it would not be catastrophic, would it? But suppose the person who was preparing the communion elements walked out onto the living room floor with a gallon of grape juice and began pouring it on the carpet. Until a whole gallon of grape juice flowed over the beige carpet in your living room. And then someone came in and cleaned that up. Someone came in and eradicated that stain, returned that carpet to its pristine showroom quality. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be a difference in magnitude between cleaning up the one, one spill, the one drop, and the flood of stain. The prophet Isaiah says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. There is a Difference in magnitude between what happened in Adam and what happens in Christ. There's a difference in outcome as well, verse 16. Through Adam there resulted condemnation upon humanity. But the gift of God results in justification or acquittal of a guilty people who deserve damnation. you see it? The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. There is a different outcome. It would be perfectly understandable to all of us here, perfectly coherent, that if a person committed murder, that they would be condemned. Condemned. Right, That the judicial judgment on them would be condemnation. That would be perfectly understandable. That outcome. But what would be completely beyond human comprehension would be if all the murderers in the world were all of a sudden to have their crimes paid for by someone else. And they were set free. That would be incomprehensible to us. That outcome so overwhelms the guilty charge on the murderer that it's incomprehensible. That's Paul's argument here. He's saying that the outcome between Adam and Christ and those that belong to them is so vastly different. That leads us to our third contrast in verse 17. We had a difference in degree in verse 15. We have a difference of extent in verse 16, both in magnitude and outcome. Finally, thirdly, we have a difference in results, verse 17. This is amazing. Just take a look at this. Paul says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more, see the afoshiori argument again, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing out to us the difference in result for the two groups. The two opposing legal declarations of condemnation and justification eventuate in two opposing kingdoms or reigns that's the concept Paul introduces here do you see it death reigns you see that verse 17 earlier and we reign in life later part of the verse the result is different it, it establishes two different rules two different kingdoms two different reigns the first reign is called the reign of death that's what comes through Adam the reign of death it just it represents the reality that that the power of death has sway over all of mankind. British pastor and commentator D. Martin Lloyd Jones said, The world is a place of cemeteries. That was his comment on this verse. How apt that is. The world is a place of cemeteries. Someone else once said, There are only two things that are certain in life taxes and death right the reign of death through the one but notice the contrast again see it much more Circle it in your bible if you have to standing against the reign of death is the gift of righteousness the grace gift of god that has the power to reverse that for the people of christ And notice further how amazing this is. Because it's not that we just go from being ruled over by death to being set free. We go from being ruled over from being the subjects of death to being incoming kings in our own right. Do you notice the difference here? He says once death reigned over us, but he says now we reign in life. We reign in life. It's not that we're just set free from the reign of death that King Death no longer rules over us, but now we become rulers ourselves. We rule in life. We change places with death and we rule over it. We now, in Christ, rule over death. We become kings. And death itself someday will be put under our feet. Someday it will be finally destroyed. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Beloved, it's not just that you're set free in Christ from the reign of death. It's that you now rule over it. It no longer binds you. It no longer controls you. It is no longer to be feared. You rule it. You have nothing to fear. Nothing. Now, it's likely that your mortal body will someday surrender to the accumulated effects of sin. That is a reality. It is most likely that living in this fallen world, that you will still ultimately go through physical death. But there's no need to fear, it doesn't rule you, it doesn't reign over you, it doesn't control you anymore, because you through Christ have been released from the penalty, the sting of death, which is sin, which eventuates in judgment. Paul expresses it this way First Corinthians again, fifty five, and following he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, united by faith to Him, the grave is no longer your greatest enemy. It is no longer the tyrant that rules your life. You'll no longer make decisions based upon your fear of what will come in the grave. Instead, you are now joint heirs with Jesus Christ and you rule over even death itself. Life everlasting is what He has given you. The reign of Adam and the reign of Christ? Different in degree. Different in in extent different in result and paul now is going to return to the initial comparison that he began earlier remember i told you last time verse 12 it ends with a a dropped thought a dropped comparison right therefore just as true verse 12 one man sin entered into the world and death was sin and so death spread to all men because all sin and it stops paul doesn't complete The comparison. He moves on to discuss the things that have immediately flooded to people's mind, but here now in verse 18 he returns to that comparison. Notice, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. He completes the contrast that he began in verse 12. Or the comparison, rather. So in verse 18 and 19, we get to see the full comparison. We've been talking about it. We've been working around the edges of it. And now it is right here in front of us. The full comparison, the reign of Adam and the reign of Christ are similar and they are similar in one way. They're similar in that one affects many. One affects many. That's their similarity. Notice how verse 18 begins where he says, so then. Do you see that? That's just telling you that he's resuming a thought that he began earlier. He began the thought in verse 12 and he left it off. So then, he's picking it up again. He's he's now going to complete what he began. And he gives us the comparison. Notice in verse 18 and 19, because 19 is really just an elaboration of 18. So then as, do you see that word as? As. That's a word of comparison. So then as, and then a little bit later you say, even so. Do you see that? As, even so. Verse 19, for as, a little bit later, even so. He's telling you that he's making a comparison here. What is the comparison? Verse 18. So then as, through one transgression, that's one side of the comparison. Even so, through one act of righteousness, the other side of the comparison. You see it? The comparison that he is making here is that one transgression with one act of righteousness. That's the comparison. As even so. As even so. Paul is not making an assertion about the groups that are affected by Adam and Christ and that they are the same groups of people. Commentators, people who read this section, they get, they get mixed up here because you, you see the all and the many in here, Right? So then, or excuse me, as through one transgression, the resulted condemnation to all men. And then later you see justification of life to all men. And people get, they get caught up in that. And they say, well, we got all and all and many and many. And so it must be talking about the same group. And so what Paul's teaching here is that all will someday be justified. A, some sort of universalism. Well, first off, that's not grammatically true within this context. But secondly, beyond that, it would... On its face, contradicts so many other passages of Scripture that you're absolutely aware of, right? Including all that's gone on in the, in the uh, Letter to the Romans up to this point. So Paul is not asserting that just because all humanity fell in Jesus Christ, that all humanity will be justified, or it fell in Adam, excuse me, that all humanity will be justified in Jesus Christ. He's not saying that. What he is comparing is that one act affects many. One act. Affects many. That all those who are Adams. Will certainly die. All those who are Jesus Christ. Will certainly live. All those who are in Adam. Without exception. Will die. But only those who receive the free gift. Of righteousness. Verse 17. Those that are in Christ. Christ. Will live. One transgression, one act of righteousness. Notice verse 19 as he further elaborates on it. You see how he says, For as through one man's disobedience, nineteen just four just tells you that he's that he's going to continue to elaborate on what he's just said. He says, for through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He's just kind of filling it out for us a little bit here. Kathistemi, it means to appoint or to make or to constitute. Again, verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were constituted. They were appointed. They were made sinners. Just as certainly through the obedience of the One, the many will be appointed, they will be constituted, they will be made righteous. The effect of Adam upon his, those that are united to Him is certain. The effect of Christ upon those united to Him is just as certain. Now this is all in the context of legal language, right? Who said that? This is a context of legal language And so what we're talking about here is imputation. Imputation or or something being attributed to another in a legal way. Paul's telling us here in verse 19 that somehow in some legal way, the transgression of the one man, the disobedience of Adam, the trespass of Adam, the, the leaving of the appointed path by Adam, his taking of the fruit when he was told not to take of it, constituted his race. Was imputed to his race as guilt. Just as certainly, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the obedience (verse 19), and I think obedience there is a is a reference to Christ's total life. It's his it's his perfect obedience of the Father's will, including and up through the cross. That's how I would understand that is now attributed to those who are in Christ by faith. The one transgression of Adam condemned everyone. The obedience of Christ justifies those who are in Christ by faith. We are constituted righteous, Paul's telling us, based on our union with Jesus Christ. Constituted righteous. We become, as Paul is fond to address Those in the church to whom he writes, saints. Isn't that true? Paul addresses us as saints, holy ones, those who are set apart, righteous people. Not because of anything inherent within us, but because of that which has been attributed or or imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ. Notice the future tense here, by the way. It says, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. I think the future tense is is just communicating to us that that the, the process of people being made righteous in Jesus Christ is not yet complete. Not in the sense of you or me, but in the sense that all the people of God have not yet come in. See, at a moment in time, at a point in time, all of humanity was corrupted in adam but there is still an ongoing process of the fallen race of adam being made righteous in jesus christ we call that the fruit of evangelism we call that conversion isn't that true i mean the reason we go and preach the gospel is because the church is not yet complete isn't that true There are people who are still being made righteous in Jesus Christ and will continue to do so until Christ returns for his bride. I think that's why he's using a future tense here at the end of verse 19. What's the comparison between Adam and Christ? It's very simple. One man's action, one man's action absolutely assured the result. Absolutely assured the result. If you are in Christ this morning by faith, you are absolutely assured of your justification, of your acquittal, of your righteous standing before God. You are wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, that's what He sees. It is yours. Verses 20, 21 or conclusion to this whole section. Paul says, And the law came in that transgression might increase. What? Where'd the law come from? I thought we were talking about a lot of other things. Now we're back to the Mosaic Law. What in the world is going on here? I think the best answer for what's going on here is to remember your audience. Paul is writing to to a group of mixed Jews and Gentiles. The Mosaic Law will never be far from the mind of the Jew. He found his identity in the Mosaic law. And so Paul needs to address the Mosaic law. And so he's going to do that as he wraps this up. And by the way, remember, this is a, his final treatment of the doctrine of justification. He is going to move on beginning in chapter 6, verse 1 with sanctification. So he's got to pick up all the loose threads that are hanging around out there and pull it all together before he moves on. And that's what he's doing here. I think the question that stands behind verse 20 is something like this if men were dying because they had sinned in adam then why introduce the law why introduce the mosaic law i mean if, if the whole race is guilty in adam and they've been dying in adam and isn't that exactly what he has told us in verses 13 and 14 So why the law then? Why bother to introduce the law? Why did God bring the Mosaic law? If you're a Jew, you want to know the answer to that question for sure. And so Paul gives them at least a a partial answer to that question. His answer is that transgression might increase. That transgression might increase. Oh. That sin might become clear and visible. That's why the law came. So that sin would become absolutely clear and visible. That which was not clear and codified before the coming of the law is now absolutely clear. For example, fornication. Prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, fornication not clearly defined as sin. Now after the law, absolutely defined as such. So it makes sin clear and visible. It was always sin, but now it's absolutely out in front for everyone to see it. But it goes beyond that. Notice he says that transgression might increase. The other reason given here in the text or the giving of the Mosaic Law is to make sin more wicked. To increase the wickedness of sin. By introducing willful disobedience. By introducing willful disobedience. See, in the past, if you didn't know it was wrong, and you did something, then it couldn't be a willful disobedience, right? Once you've been specifically told no, and you do it anyway, you've just ramped it up big time. Which is worse. Throwing a rock through a plate glass window or throwing a rock through a plate glass window that has a big sign on it that says, do not throw a rock through this window. You also know which will happen more likely, don't you? (laughs) The introduction of the law, what it really does is it turns each and every one of us into our own little atom. You're now your own little Adam. You have specifically violated the clear commands of God. Transgression has increased. Question, why would God want to increase people's condemnation? Why would God want wickedness to grow and be greater? That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You would think he would want to reduce sin. Why does he want sin to become more evil, more wicked, more gripping upon the soul, mind, of humanity? Why? I'm glad you asked that question. Verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you see it? Grace abounded all the more. The reason that God wanted to ramp up condemnation is so he would be able to magnify his grace when he overcomes it. This is way under translated here, by the way. I think I looked at all the English translations and they all under translated. And that is so too bad. (laughs) So I'm going to fix it for you. Okay. But where sin uh, uh, increased, grace superabounded. There's a better translation. Okay, Grace superabounded all the more. It overflowed to the glory of God. How? Verse 21. That as sin reigned in death, it again, Even so, the grace of God might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see it? It's the conquering the kingdom of death. That usurper that entered in to God's perfect creation and has brought untold misery ever since. God wanted to crush it. But He didn't want to just crush a Kind of a a weakened version. He wanted to crush the real thing. Trying to think of a good analogy here. It'd be like you're a school kid. We'll try this. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't have this in my notes, so I'm totally making this up. I got another one in my notes. I'll try that one next. It'd be like you're a school kid and you're getting picked on. And so, you defend yourself against, the, you know, one of the people that are picking on you, but you pick the smallest one. That's not all that impressive. See, the group that's picking on you, you pick the biggest dude in the group. The one who's about two feet taller than you and shaving already, and you know, and you're in third grade. <laughs> and that's the one you go get. That's super abounding, Okay. I'll have all these parents talking to me afterward. What are you trying to teach my kid about <laughs> All right, I'll give you the one ahead of my notes. Here's one of the notes. If you like this one better. Number 16. Number 16, we had uh, the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram. You remember them? They were the sons of Korah. And they were, they were, um, they were not satisfied with Moses' leadership. And so they were rebelling against him. Now, Moses could have dealt with Dathan and Abiram quietly, couldn't he? Couldn't he have just told Joshua and a few others to just take these guys aside and, you know, square them away? But instead, what he did is he challenged them to a public confrontation. Do you remember this? He said, Dathan and Abiram, come on out here. Give me your best shot, basically. Let God show who is His. And the nation gathered to watch. And God tore open the ground and swallowed them and their families and closed it up over them. Why? So that everyone who looks on knows that you mess with Moses and you're on shaky real estate, right? See, it's superabounded. That's what's going on here. God brought in the law that the wickedness of the human heart would be amplified. So that it's at most virile state. Sin on steroids. And then he crushed it. And he crushed it. With the grace of God. You see that? Now, Unless you think I'm missing the text. You take a look at verse 1 of the next chapter. Because that, by the way, is the erroneous human logical conclusion of what the argument is. What do we say to this, then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? That would be the wrong understanding, by the way, of everything that's just been taught. And how does Paul answer that? May it never be. But that's what's going on. Paul's telling us under inspiration of the Spirit of God, why did the law come? The law came so that sin and wickedness could be as ugly and as powerful and as controlling and as dominant as possible. So that when He slays it, He gets all the glory that He is rightfully due. This is magnificent. This is magnificent. That it's on this triumphant note that He ends this whole section on justification. It's like a symphony. It's been brought up to the to the great crescendo. And here it is. Beginning in chapter one, verses 18 through chapter three, verse 20, Paul, like a like a sledgehammer. You remember that? It's sin, 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 the wickedness, the fallenness of humanity over and over and over again. The condemnation. You guys were crying at me saying, please, enough condemnation. And finally, we turn the corner to justification. Romans 3.21, right? And it's been justification, 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 and it's risen like a symphony here to its great crescendo, chapter 5, verse 21, with the final crash of the cymbals. The grace of God has overwhelmed sin. How? Through the substitutionary atonement of His own Son. We are saved by grace through faith based upon the death of Jesus Christ. That is the singular and effectual means by which a fallen sinner is made right with their creator. That is the gospel. What are we going to do with it? What do we do with it? Beloved, this has got to change the way you live. This has absolutely got to change the way you live. If this doesn't change the way you live, you don't understand it. Perhaps you don't even really believe it. This has got to make a difference. We reign in life eternally through Jesus Christ. That is now the reality if you have embraced Him by faith. If that is true, then why do we cling to the things of this world? Things that so clearly represent the reign and rule of death. You know, the Egyptians built pyramids. Grand pyramids are still there today. I'm told I've never seen them. They filled those pyramids with food and clothing and jewelry. The trappings of this dead and dying world. And they tried to transport them and drag them into the next. We know the silliness of all of it, don't we? It just provided a fertile hunting ground for grave robbers. It's a vain attempt to take the treasure of the dead and dying and transport it to the kingdom of the living. And you can't do it. You cannot do it. The things of this world are cemetery trappings. They are grave clothes and they bear the stench of death. Just as assuredly as your favorite coat that you take when you go camping, And you sit around the campfire, right? And you bring it home and you smell it. And what does it smell like? Smoke, fire. The things of this world smell like death. And yet we hug them so tight. Somehow thinking foolishly that we can drag them with us into the next. We are so silly. So misinformed. So captivated by that which is passing. Willing to trade a bauble for the riches of glory in Christ. Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do your life and priorities reflect it? That's the question. Beloved, if we're going to have any kind of impact on this world for Jesus Christ, we have got to structure our lives Around our theology. We have got to make the difficult choices. To understand. That if you are in Christ. You are a citizen of another kingdom. In which you reign in life. And that the grave. Which is the thing that is most feared. Is the thing that now you walk on. And by extension. If you fear not death then how can anything that belongs to the realm of death have a hold on your life? I'm not saying it's easy. But this is where theology meets life. You can be so orthodox in your doctrine of justification and so missing the boat in the way you live your life. This has got to change us. It's got to change us. If something I've said this morning has resonated with you, something you want to talk about more, maybe you just need some time to pray and talk to God, sort something out in your life. We have a prayer room over here by this lighted cross place where you can go and be alone to pray if you choose, or if you want someone to pray with you and for you. They'll be available to you. Maybe the lights have just gone on for you this morning. Gone on in the sense that you now understand the cross. I mean, we're rolling right into Easter here, right? By the way, this is the plug. Friday night, this week, Good Friday service. What time is it, Ron? Seven, isn't it? Be here, seven o'clock. we going to open the Word together. Why in the world is the crucifixion Good Friday? Because it is through the crucifixion of Christ, right, that comes the kingdom of life. If the lights have just gone on for you, maybe the bulb's not burning as bright as it needs to be, but at least it's illuminated. It's flickering. You come over there. Let us talk with you. Let us show you the fullness of life in Christ. How it can be yours. Let's pray. Lord God, we just begin by confessing our attachment to the kingdom of death. Our foolish and sinful preoccupation with the things of this world which are passing. Our dim and hazy view of reality which is the life to come. Our Father, we thank You for the clarity of the Scriptures. Particularly this section of Romans and how Paul has systematically, like a skillful lawyer, built his argument point upon point, precept upon precept, in which he has demonstrated conclusively and overwhelmingly that justification through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, without reference to good works, is the means by which we are made right before You. Our Father, we pray that You would help us to cling to that truth. And that truth would set us free. Set us free from our appetites for the things that are passing. We pray in Christ's name, Amen.